Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians. We're still in Colossians, I believe, chapter 1 this morning. We are going to uh, work through verses 24 through 29 of Colossians chapter 1. I, uh, I want to uh, talk with you about two major themes that are going to emerge from this scripture this morning. And the first theme is Christ, our union, or our union with Christ. And the second point that I would like to make with you is Christ, our living reality. So the first point is Christ, our union. The second point is Christ, our living reality. And this morning, I wanted to kind of give you that so that we can give, kind of have a framework for understanding what we're going to tear apart this morning. Some of this was very difficult for me this week because I would definitely have to tell you that I am a journeyer just like you, and I struggle um, with many of the, the, the very admonishing nature of the Scripture in my life. And um, it cuts me, it convicts me, and on many days, I, I, to tell you the truth, uh, this morning I, I don't feel worthy, you know, to come and actually be a man who, who, who preaches the Word. But I do want you to know that as I share with you this morning, I'm not sharing with you as a man from on high as much as just a fellow journeyer that Christ is really teaching me some things. And so we'll trust that the words that I share this morning won't necessarily be, be mine, but what Christ and God wants to do with the words. Let's read this morning in Colossians chapter 1. Look what Paul says. He, first of all, gives us a pretty controversial scripture that's been argued about for years and we'll try to bring some clarity and understanding to that. But let's read there at verse 24. Now, he says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. Verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of of glory. In verse 28, and we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect, meaning mature in Christ. Verse 29, to this end, Paul says, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Verse 24, 
Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Let's make sure we first of all say what, what Paul is not saying with this scripture. What, do you, what per, Paul's words here do not mean that Christ's saving work on the cross lacked sufficient merit to secure our salvation. It didn't lack it. Paul is not saying that his sufferings or, of the, or, his sufferings or the sufferings of the church could or were, would in any way add merit beyond what Christ had already achieved. So what was he saying? Here's the point that Paul's saying when he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Paul was actually receiving the persecution that was intended for Christ. Jesus, having ascended to heaven, was out of their reach. But his enemies had not filled up on all the injuries they wanted to inflict on Christ. And they turned their hatred on those who preached the gospel. It was in that sense that Paul was kind of filling up what was lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Another commentary said that God has divinely appointed suffering for Christ and his church. Christ's suffering was sufficient for our salvation, but there was going to be suffering that was going to continue on in our lives. In fact, it's a difficult concept for me and probably for you to understand that, that suffering is a normative part of our life. It, it is well within context of the gospel. We, we talk a lot about it around here. It's not something you hear on television. You hear the exact opposite thing on television or from certain people who speak as if there should be no pain in our lives and all of your life should be just one great, phenomenal, purposeful plan to find out great things about God and walk in the rose petals. Oh boy. I'm not picking on certain people, although I have problems with certain people because I think theologically they don't understand what, what the scriptures teach us. They truly do give us, now follow this now, they give us a theological understanding of suffering and our pain. It is very normative for us to understand that as followers of the cross, we carry a cross. Jesus speaks about it often in the New Testament. He speaks about this life of suffering that we will have. He doesn't speak about it necessarily as punishment for things that we're doing. But he speaks about it as being, this is actually a way in which we participate in the sufferings with Christ. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's really important to understand. Paul speaks about this concept often. In 1 Thessalonians 3, he said, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in the faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You, and then he says this, You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way. And we will be. And that doesn't help me. That doesn't help you, does it? 
It's not a great message for us to know that we're going to suffer. Paul's not even just talking about suffering. He's, he's twisting the wrench and he's talking about, I have joy in my suffering. Well, what in the world is that about? Paul's favorite subject, if you look through the Pauline epistles, is this concept. Get this, because it's a beautiful concept. And it's one that we don't hear a lot about. But it's this beautiful concept of union with Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? This concept of union with Jesus. When I got married, I entered into a union with my wife, Shelly. Before God and witnesses, I stood before the world and I said that it's not about me any longer. It's about us. It's about Shelly and I. It's about us. Ephesians 5 talks about a man and a woman will leave their father and mother and become what? One flesh. The concept of the gospel is, is that Paul's talking about that actually in sufferings, we're actually in union with Christ. Our sufferings are kind of a sign, if you will, of the union that we have with Jesus. Right? Have you ever heard this statement? It will be the death of you. My mother used to say when we were teenagers, we always used to, or right before teenagers, used to run outside and play football in the winter in Michigan, and we never liked to wear jackets. And she would say, if you don't wear a jacket, it will be the death of you. We never died. Well, maybe I would look at many of you in this audience and I would tell you this. Don't, don't get married because it'll be the death of you. Did you hear what I said? Don't give yourself to something fully or to another person, another person in your life or your wife or your husband or the church or your service in the city because it will be it will be the death of you. Don't get married. Don't do those things if you're not ready to die. Paul talks about this when he speaks. And I love this. And here's our encouragement for this morning when we think about this concept of being union in union with Christ. But we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not, in, not abandoned. Struck down, but we're not destroyed. Then listen to this. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So Paul's statement, why, why he could have joy in his suffering as he understood that being in union with Jesus meant that he was dying. His breaths were fewer every day. His struggles, his sufferings reminded him of that death. That was the journey that Christ was calling him on. 
fact, my whole, really, if you want, if I were to get honest with you, my whole married life has been the slow, painful, and yet beautiful death of me. And the slow and painful and yet beautiful life of us. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about the beautiful life, follow this now, of us. It's a it's two-letter word, but it's a completely different meaning, us and me. He and Jesus. Now follow this, this, in, this concept, this image that we have of this intense interactive relationship with Jesus. This intense interrelatedness that we have with him is far different than what I learned in Sunday school about Jesus. That he changed the water into wine. That he, that he performed all kinds of miracles. The facts that we know. What Paul is referring to here is this intense, this understanding where he says, I rejoice in my sufferings and I fill up what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. He's speaking of this idea that he's partaking, he's in union, he's interrelated. It's this interactive understanding of he and Jesus. This union, this relationship is so intense that I can suffer with joy actually. Because that is what, now follow this, that is what Paul would say, struggle and suffering, that is what we do together. We do that together. That is what Jesus did. Did you know that in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 it says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So Paul is doing the, saying the same thing that Jesus said and was about. But Paul understood this concept. I like this concept of we, we do this together. It's, it's kind of understood. It's a part of our union with each other. And it is a, it's a part of my union with my wife. It's a part of my union with my deep friendships. This, this concept of this, this joyful suffering in my home we like we like to have what's called kitchen dancing we dance in our kitchen it's so fun I'm not a good dancer my daughters all dance and we'll make food together It's just what we do together. It's cool. And they love to laugh at my moves, you know. And there's certain songs that come on that I love that they don't love, and I can't get it. How could you not love 70s rock? It's the best generation of rock music ever. How can you not love Led Zeppelin? I mean, come on. How can you not love Motown? And they do, you know. They have their songs, but it's so funny because oftentimes when we're dancing, when the sad, when the sad song or the slow song comes on, the girls like to walk up to that changer and click it. Hmm. 
And in our life with Jesus, follow this. In our life with Jesus, our suffering is oftentimes the sad and slow song that is sung over us. And all too often, God doesn't seem content to change to the next song. But it is still a most beautiful thing because it is, it is the opportunity to dance with Jesus in the song. And some of you are, are dancing now in your suffering. The song that is being sung over you is sad. Your only hope during, your, during the dance is who you're dancing with. It's about your partner. It's not about the song in that, in that picture, or that illustration I'm giving you. So the question that would, ha would be good for us is who do we dance with in our suffering? Well, Paul got what he wanted. Do you remember what he wanted? Do you remember in Philippians 3.10 what he wanted? Paul actually said this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of what? Sharing in his sufferings. Paul wanted, this is so interesting and we can't tear it apart a lot, but he wanted to, he wanted the fellowship, the, 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 the intimacy the dance that, that comes with this fellowship when I share the sufferings of Christ. I was thinking about that this week and I thought, have I got what I wanted? Have I got what I wanted in life? Because I would probably readily have to confess to you, I'm not so sure that I, I want Jesus and I want to suffer so that he and I can be close and intimate together. I, I don't know if I want that. I have a large aversion to my pain, do you? And I seem to run out of the kitchen a lot in my life, do you? It's a beautiful thing for us to think about, our union with Christ. Let's go back. And look at verse 26 there. The second point. Christ, our union, was the first. The second point is Christ now, our living reality. Christ, our living reality. Before I go there, before we read verse 26, listen um, to this when we talk about reality. This is uh, from uh, one of my favorite authors. I really love what he has to say. His name is Dallas Willard. And he makes a current comment on us. See if you agree. The current guide to reality and what is good in the United States, if not the Western world as a whole, is sensuality or feeling. The answers that people live by are provided by feelings. Desire, not reality, and not what is good rules our world. That is even true for the most part within Christendom. Most of what Americans do in their religion now is done at the behest of their feelings. 
They judge Christian activities and their own religious condition according to their feelings. The quest for pleasure takes over the house of God. What is good or what is true is no longer the guide. I think it's, an, I think it's a very acute and very cutting point about us. And I think it's a very acute and cutting point about me. And what Paul is trying to do here when he says there in verse 26 is he's trying to give us an understanding of a complete different reality in verse 26 and verse 27. He's trying to give us a complete different understanding of this living reality being Jesus. Look there, verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden, very interesting language, kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Verse 27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul here is speaking about redemptive history, the way in which God has de decided to reveal his redeeming plan to mankind from the beginning of time. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a golf fanatic. I, it's, it's terrible, really. And uh, I, I love all things golf, and I had a chance a couple of years back to visit the home of a prominent PGA Tour uh, player, this player who went, actually won the British Open. And uh, we were at his house, and, and uh, I was just kind of relaxing. It was me and another family, so there wasn't too many people there. And I was real scared about kind of infringing and wanting to ask all my questions, you know, uh, and because I'm sure he had dealt with that a billion times and that kind of thing. And so um, he, we're sitting there kind of watching television, and he looks over at me, and he says, Hey, dude, want to see my trophy room? And I thought, what an interesting thing to say to someone. Do you think I wanted to see it? <laughs> Did I ever? I wanted to see the British Open trophy. I knew he, and I knew he, he was also a Ryder Cupper too. So I wanted to see all that stuff. And he, he, he and I, so I immediately jump on it. I said, yes, yes. I was like a kid in a candy shop. We're walking down the hallway, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm thinking, I'm going to see the Shekinah glory. Ooh! You know, I mean, this is unbelievable for a golfer, right? We walk in there, and it was, it, was, it was surreal how it affected me. It was weird. And um, I was caught up in just the images and the, and the, and the shine and and the opulence of the room. I mean, everything about it was just so over the top. That image is exactly what Paul is trying to do for us in verse 26 and 27. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to give us this concept that we've walked into this place. We're walking into this place and we're suddenly taken into the trophy room when he talks about this idea of mystery being revealed to us. Listen to this. He calls it a mystery that has been kept hidden but is now disclosed. That says there, that's, that's in verse 26 there. This imagery here reminds you almost 
of this kind of this idea of a tour guide. And let's call this tour guide God, the Father, who has finally let you take a tour of the richest and most mysterious of palaces. And once you're inside, the beauty of it is hard to behold. And the tour guide God stops you before entering and says, this is the glory room. This is the room where all of my riches are stored. Do you want to see them? You see, he says, I'm finally going public with my infinite beauty and my infinite worth. And he opens the door and we see a cross and we see a king. And his name is Jesus. That's the imagery that Paul's trying to set up for us here when he talks to us about this idea of it being hidden for generations but now is disclosed to the saints the riches of the glory of glory being Christ Jesus. And God makes the most astounding statement of all and it echoes through the hallways of human history and it echoes through the hallways of my dark heart and he says all of this I'm showing you all of my glory I'm showing you and I'm not only showing you but guess what I want to share it get this now I want to share it with you he even takes it one step further that he would actually say actually I'm sharing him my absolute glory my fame and my all my ultimate riches Christ I'm not sharing it only with you but I'm sharing it in you in you my glory now lives inside you and that is now your living reality where before it was hidden now it's in you do you believe it do you believe it let me ask you again do you believe it do you believe that Christ the triune God, the King of all creation, the Lord who died on a cross and, cross and was resurrected, do you believe that he now resides and lives in your very life, my friend? Think about the miracle of it. Do you, do you know what Christ is doing there inside you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever asked yourself the question, Christ, what are you doing inside me? <laughs> well, he's on a glory mission. His chief goal in taking up residence inside your body is his own glory, believe it or not. God's a glory hog. He's jealous for his glory. He wants to continue to announce to the world his infinite beauty. He wants to continue to announce to the world his infinite worth, believe it or not, through your broken body, your jar of clay, the frailty of your life, the mess of it all. He wants to announce his infinite beauty and his infinite worth. 
He wants to announce it to your husband. He wants it to announce it to your girlfriend. He wants to announce it to your wife. He wants people to be in awe, not in and of themselves, like I am and like we are, but to be in awe of Him and to proclaim His fame as a result of spending time with Him. We proclaim Him. Does the way I treat my wife bring fame to God? Does it bring glory? Is my life as I am with my friends and as I struggle with the things I struggle with, am I consumed with this concept of bringing infinite worth and infinite beauty to my master who lives inside of me? Is it? When you think about it, I spend a lot of time with people throughout the week. And you know what gets a lot of glory in our lives? What gets a lot of glory in our lives are our pasts. We're so articulate at talking about our past. Literally, many of us have like multiple PhDs in our past. It gets all the glory. It's as if we bow down to it and we can sit around a table and talk about how messed up it all really is. Getting the glory. That's not it. The idea of our past would actually be that our past would come underneath the glory of God. That God, Christ Jesus, has championed and triumphed over our past. To shut the door on that. To actually say, I'm going to use that to even glorify myself even greater in what you're going to do now in your present and in the future. It's hard, isn't it? A couple weeks ago, my family got into an accident. Some of you know about it. I got the worst call of my life when uh, my wife called me and said, uh, come down to the accident. The kids are hurt. No dad would ever want to hear that. It's very difficult to deal with. And after the phone call, I threw the phone and I melted into the carpet of my bedroom. I was wailing. And the only name I could utter in that, in that time was Christ. So even in some sense, and in the beautiful way that it transpired afterwards, Christ got the glory in that terrible tragedy.
good, isn't it? It's painful, but good. Be encouraged, my friends. We have much to thank God for. He lives in us. He's jealous for his glory. Be encouraged. Be encouraged, young pilgrims. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what it means to us. We, we see Paul, and he has this, he has this union with you that um, I know I get very convicted about. I don't, I, I don't get it. I, I struggle with it. I, I'm convicted, Lord, and I, I need to repent so much of my selfishness. I know that I uh, would find it very hard to say I want to know you and the fellowship of sharing in your suffering. I say that it'd be very hard for me to say I have actually joy in suffering. Oh Lord, help us. Help, help us understand what you're trying, trying to say to us, especially as it relates to this world we live in. It's, help us, Lord Jesus. We need everything that you have. Help us, Lord, in our lives to understand that our living reality, our day-to-day -day existence is to understand that you live inside of us, to bring glory to yourself, to transform our lives so that glory would come out. Lord, it's hard for us. We're consumed with our own glory. Thank you so much for my friends this morning. Thank you so much for this church that you're kissing and that you love. We pray that your name was lifted high today. Amen.